You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. Um, I am really excited today. I get to close out a series that I think has been really important for our community as we've talked about outcasts, the friends of Jesus, and, and, and what we've noticed is that Jesus befriends people that a lot of us would be tempted not to befriend. And so what I want to do for the next few moments is I, I, want, to, I want us to step into the most unlikely befriending that we have in Jesus. And um, before I do that, though, I want to welcome you to paradise. Did you know life is like paradise sometimes? How many of you have been to an island that just captured you? You know what I'm talking about? Like, like you were like, I didn't know sand was white. Anyone been to one of these places? Or, or maybe you've been to, I've been to Yosemite. And, and there are these points in Yosemite. There's actually this then you, um, well, if you're like me, you take a gondola up to the top because you don't hike. Um, and you take this gondola up to the top. And it's called heavenly for a reason, because when you look out, it's like, this can't be real. I didn't know that a movie screen was incapable of capturing what I've just seen. Because you're tempted in that moment to say, oh, this is like out of a movie. And then you realize, no, no, this is real. This is paradise. Maybe you've been to... um, a, a place where the city landscape just took your breath away. And you thought to yourself, thanks, modern technology, you do some things well, right? And, and it was just this beautiful sort of like, whoa, did you, when we moved to Seattle or we were getting ready to move to Seattle, it's that point when you're at the airport and you're coming through I-5, <laughs> I didn't say the I-5, all you haters, um, I-5, the I-5, Cali style, and, and we come in and all of a sudden you go around that curve and for the first time you see the city and you see the Space Needle and especially at nighttime and you're just like, did I just move here or did I just get home, some of you, you know what I'm saying? And, and it's just this like, I don't even know, like, I, I grew up in a place where there was beauty sometimes, but the beauty was usually covered up by the smog, and so here, I'm just like, this isn't real, and so every time, my poor daughter, she moved here when she was three months old, and so every time we hit downtown, I'm just like, oh, Lydia, look at how beautiful, look at the city, and she's like, oh, cool, dad, I like the space needle, you know, and it's like normal for her, but I never want these kind of things to be normal, it is beautiful, or, or when we're going outside of the city, or even in, what kind of town has bodies of water surrounding you, you know? Oh, Lydia, look at Green Lake on your way to daycare this morning. Look at the way the fog is just kind of hovering. She's like, oh, yeah, Daddy, that's very pretty. Can we go to daycare now? You know, like, but it's, oh, paradise. Maybe there's those things that, that when you are in that space, you know, not only you are safe, but you are welcome and you're in awe. That, that's, that does something to the human spirit. Spirit. That does, I mean, you don't have to believe that God made all this stuff to be in awe of how cool the stuff is, right? I happen to believe that God was in, in, involved in this and, and has actually wired us to be in awe of it. 
And yet, when we talk about paradise in, in, in our life, part of what makes it so interesting is that it is juxtaposed. It's like this other reality against all the stuff we deal with on a regular basis. All of the pain, all of the frustration, all of the, the baggage we carry through life. So, so when we see those moments of paradise, it's like I can't believe, some, for some of us, it's like this radical contrast between what I know to be real and the grind of my life to what I believe should be real in all of life, right? And, and, and so, so as we talk about the outcasts, these, these like outcasts of Jesus. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most interesting ones, in my opinion. The, Jesus gets executed. This is no um, mystery, right? I, do we have any crucified Jesuses in here? No, we don't. But, but, but you've seen this um, movie by Mel Gibson, and you heard the story for the first time, I'm sure. And um, we know from the Gospel of Luke that there were three people being executed on that particular hill. And by the way, the hill's name is The Skull, right? Like, how cool is that? Like, isn't that kind of cryptic? Like, it terrifies me, you know? The Skull, you know? And, and it was probably that because it's where a lot of dead people ended up, and there are probably skulls laying around. Who knows? Um, but, but Jesus is executed, and he has this very interesting conversation with one of the people he's being executed with. In fact, he talks to both of them at one point. But, but there's this moment where Jesus says these words, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, if you were here last week, you know, we, we talked about kind of the opposite of paradise. We actually talked about this parable that's often interpreted as talking about hell. We, we talked about why that's probably not the case, and you can go back if you weren't here. Uh, we, we record all this stuff. You can go to the podcast and check that out, but, but there's this story about a guy named Lazarus and this unnamed man who is apparently rich, and, and there's this parable about how there's this great chasm between them. It seems to be an afterlife scene, and so Lazarus, who was poor and abused and an outcast, in the next life, hangs out with Father Abraham, who had many sons, and he hung out there and was comforted, and the rich man is on this other side of this chasm. It's apparently hot there, right? It's apparently not comfortable there. And, and what you have in that story that we looked at last week is this like radical reversal of fortune, right? The ones who are out are in, the ones who thought they were in and neglected the so-called out find themselves on the out. It's very fascinating. And so throughout Luke's gospel, which is where we've been most of this series, um, throughout Luke's gospel and the gospels in general, you have these radical upsets where those who are out, Jesus says, are in, and those who are thought to be in might not be as in as they thought. And, and so that frames the conversation we're going to have today because we see on the cross Jesus saying, Welcome to paradise, my friend. Can you imagine saying that to someone who's being executed? Welcome to, I don't know. It's kind of a wild story. But before we get there, I, I want us to frame crucifixion a little bit because um, it's not just something they did because Jesus. How many of you grew up with that? Like, you know, 
Jesus is such a bad dude and he really has to die for everyone's sin. So we have this new innovative method. We're gonna string him up on a cross. Can you imagine? Because in 2000 years, this is gonna be an icon, a religious idea. And so they're like, hey, Jesus, so you have to die. You know, we could hang you. We could behead you. We could do all these things. But today we have this new idea. We're gonna nail you to pieces of wood and see how long it takes for you to suffocate to death as you hang there. Yeah, I, I grew up thinking it was like Jesus and a couple of others who happened to hang out with Jesus that day. They're like, oh, here's your fate, Jesus. Okay, we'll do this to these guys too. We've got to kill them anyway, right? And that was kind of what crucifixion was. Um, actually, crucifixion in the ancient world was a death chamber for the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. So you could be executed by all kinds of different means. But what it ends up being about is if you were the worst of the worst, the most despised outcast, then crucifixion is your fate for the Romans. I've, I've read this quote before, and the few of you who pay attention will remember it, and I apologize for that. But the rest of you, you know, regular people, you people who are like, this guy, he talks too long, whatever. Um, here, here's, here's what uh, one uh, theologian, actually two theologians in a co-written book have to say about crucifixion. And it's very helpful for just sort of framing what's happening to Jesus in these gospels. This is Joel Green and Mark D. Baker. They say this, the humiliation and foolishness associated with the cross becomes more clear when we consider the nature of crucifixion among the Romans as Cicero remarked in his defense of a Roman senator. So now we're hearing Cicero's own words. This is what he said. But the executioner, the veiling of the head and not the very word cross should be, or and the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, from his eyes and his ears. Indeed, the very mention of them is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. So they continue. Death on a cross was associated with such shame that it was, com it was not a topic for polite company. So if you're not an outcast, to speak of crucifixion was kind of like dirty. It, it tainted the room. We don't want to know that happens. We just know that there are some less than human ones who deserve it, right? It's like sitting at the dinner table and saying, hey, you know what I want to talk about? Can we talk about all the people who are currently on death row awaiting their execution? Wouldn't that be great company talk, right? Welcome to my home. Would you like a glass of wine, right? Like, like, like we, don't, we don't like the thought of what horrible things happen in this world. And neither did they, except the way it often was spun in the ancient world is that if you had privilege, you knew you could never be crucified. And you wouldn't even talk about it. You wouldn't even mention it. You wouldn't even bring it to mind. It's so disgusting and disturbing that Paul has to talk about it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this, he says, in God's wisdom, he determined that the world wouldn't come to know him through its wisdom. Instead, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of preaching. Jews ask for signs and Greeks look for wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified, which is a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Can I pause there for a moment? Why is this a scandal to Jews? The first point of clarification is that Christ is not Jesus' last name. He doesn't come from the Christ, right? Oh, you know, Joseph Christ, right? Like, like, so, so Christ is just a way we, in English, transliterate a word Christos in Greek. Now, Christos does not mean Christ. It literally means Messiah or anointed one. It actually is the word they used to capture this deep Jewish hope in the ancient world. So anytime you hear Jesus Christ, you should actually, in your mind, realize, well, actually what they're saying is Jesus the Messiah, right? So, so that, because as soon as you go Jesus Christ, you lose the storyline that Jesus steps into. Do you, you get what I'm saying? By the way, I'm not anti-Christ. Haha, <laughs> that's funny. Um, and, and, and so the, the word Christ is fine. Um, but you get the idea, and for Jewish people to have a crucified Messiah was utterly the most ridiculous thing that could ever happen. So when he says, Messiah crucified, that, that's, that's an oxymoron. That just doesn't happen. That's silly, right? So, so Paul has to say, it is a scandal. It's scandalous. And to Greeks, I mean, for people that are Gentile, to Romans, to all, all the people outside of the Jewish storyline, that's utter foolishness. You mean you had a king and we killed him? Yeah, good job. Yeah, great king, right? Like, like it doesn't even compute, right? And, and so Paul goes on in verse 24, he says, like, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power. The Messiah is God's power and God's wisdom. This is because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. It could come across that God is being a little cocky. Oh, the weakness, I'm way stronger, you know. But place it in the middle of a crucified revolutionary Messiah. God's like, look, you gave Jesus, you gave me the best violence you had to offer. I, Jesus conquered it. Like, like I, you, you thought that you could use the strongest fear mechanism to destroy what Jesus was up to. And Jesus walked away from that with a couple of scars. This is foolish. This is a scandal. And for those who believed that they had actually had visions or had seen Jesus outside of death, resurrected, crucifixion is crazy. In fact, we know that in 70 and the years leading up to 70 CE, the, the Romans will come in and they'll besiege Jerusalem. That's why in Mark chapter 13, right, Jesus says, when you see all these armies starting to come around and you see all this stuff, get out of Dodge because it's all coming down. And, and, and during those years that Jesus actually predicted, what we have 
is accounts. And a, a guy named Josephus writes down just what's happening. He's a historian. And in Josephus, we find out that there are mass crucifixions all the way around the city. When they captured these revolutionary, revolting um, Jewish people who want to defeat Rome and establish Jerusalem as a kingdom again, the Romans come in and say, well, that's treason. What do we do to people who commit treason? We execute them on crosses. Jesus is executed as though he is a treasonist. That has to frame the story that we're about to step into. So here's what Luke says. This is in Luke chapter 23. Um, verse 32 is where we'll start. And, and I, I just want to read the whole story. We're going to make a couple of observations afterwards. And um, that'll be kind of how we, we roll this morning. So here's the story. It says, they also led two other criminals to be executed with Jesus. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Some of the most famous words out of Jesus' mouth is he is experiencing the most excruciating way that the Romans had come up with to kill someone. And he says, forgive. He says words of love. It continues, they drew lots as a way of dividing up his clothing. The people were standing around him watching, but the leaders sneered at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he really is a Christ sent from God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you really are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Above his head was a notice of the formal charge against him. It read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging next to Jesus insulted him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Responding, the other criminal spoke harshly to him. Don't you fear God, seeing that you've also been sentenced to death? We are rightly condemned for we are receiving the appropriate sentence for what we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. There's a few things to note that, I mean, we could analyze all of the ways that this passage, this moment, takes Jesus in the ultimate position of an outsider. We, we, we could do that, and we're going to talk about some of those implications. I mean, for instance, they offer him sour wine, which when I heard that story growing up, I always thought that was like a, a way to like numb the pain and maybe a, an act of mercy. You know who gets sour wine in the ancient world? The outcasts. How many of you drink sour wine for fun? Right? These are all little clues 
to how far outside of normal society Jesus was in these moments. And so I, I want us to understand a couple of things. And, and it's kind of a crazy story, right? Like, like you get one criminal mocking Jesus, like, come on, dude. It says you're the king of the Jews. I hear you're this fancy Messiah. I hear you do these miracles, blah, blah, blah. Just save us. And this other criminal comes along. He's like, we kind of earned our punishment. Now, now here's, here's the worst way to interpret the Bible, by the way. Having a marginal character determine your theology. So some people will argue but the thief on the cross acknowledges that he should be executed, man. Kill them all. Let God sort them out, bruh. Actually, that's more hippie, so that's probably not how it would be. It'd be like, you know, anyway, different. Like, yeah, I'm not going to get too pejorative. But, but you get the idea, right? Like, like it's like, like, the thief gets it. So obviously, we should base our ideas about executing people who kill other people on him. And we're going to talk about some of that terrible way to read the Bible, just so you know. Do you think in that moment he figured it all out? No, no, no. But, but, but one thing he knew is that Jesus didn't deserve the kind of execution Jesus was getting. And one thing he knew was that the Jewish hope was that after this life, there would be a space in which rest was possible. In fact, this is one of only a couple of passages that let us know in the New Testament that there's, that there's any kind of intermediate state between this life and God's eventual plan to restore creation in the end. You know, he comes back, he heals, he purges, he judges, the dead come to life, right? I know it's all apocalyptic crazy, but, but it's, it's the hope we have that the world as it is isn't the world as it will be, right? So we talk about around here. But there are a few passages in the New Testament that give us glimpses that, that between this body that will eventually die being brought back to life, just like Jesus' body was brought back to life, incorruptible, healed, restored, that there is a space in which the non-embodied part of ourselves will be with God in some way. We get this here, we get glimpses of it in Revelation 4 and 5, they're all worshiping, and so we assume that this scene in heaven somehow reflects something that's real about reality. Um, we, we get it in Paul, Paul's like, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but I will remain with you for your benefit, right? And, and that's pretty much like if we're talking about this like space between this world and our experience of it and a world that is going to be invaded by the beauty of heaven, restoring all things, there's only a couple of places that actually talk about this, like, what happens in the middle, right? We've had 2,000 years of this middle space. Where's my grandpa? Where's all these people I love? Well, here we get a glimpse that there is this, this reality, we'll call it paradise, where the non-embodied part of ourselves somehow is at rest with God. We really don't know much more about it than that. And in this moment, this criminal says, I, I want that. I don't think I deserve that, but I want that. And Jesus says, no, no. You will be with me. You know what's really interesting though, about the story? 
Jesus is only there for a couple days, so it's like, hey, man, get a couple rounds of golfing in paradise, and then I'm going to, you know, go do my thing, but I'll be back in, like, 40, 50 days. It's all good, right? So, so keep it, you know, sort of, like, hold it down here while I'm hanging out after the resurrection, right? So, so I, I don't know how that works, but anyway. So, so, so what can we get from this story? A couple of really, really important thoughts. The first one is this. In identifying with one executed criminal, Jesus identifies with all executed criminals. Ooh. We're going to get a little Anabaptist, nonviolent crazy up in here because here is what you need to know. It is because of Christians that the death penalty still exists in America. That's it. It is literally because of Christians that the death penalty exists. Can we, let's break down the structure of my little sentence for a second. Because of Christians, death. Jesus, defeat death. Like, can you, do, do you already start to sense the contradiction? And you know how it's often defended? Well, before the law came around, there was death, and God instructed that there would have to be executions back, you know, Noah, back in the day. Here's the deal. Can you imagine Jesus flipping the switch for anyone in the execution chamber? Can we? Start there. Like, the Jesus you know from the Gospels, from Paul's letters, even from Revelation when it's, you know, not interpreted as crazy future, you know, anyway, left behind, right? Like, like when we look at the real Jesus, is that Jesus willing to stand in the executioner room and flip the switch to give the lethal injection? If you can't imagine Jesus doing that, you shouldn't be able to imagine any human doing that and calling it good. It just doesn't work. And of course, there's all the other stats, and I don't have them in front of me, but there are several studies that have said, oh, you know, the death penalty does not deter actual people who end up on the death penalty. This has been, these are studies from the 80s, the 90s. I mean, it is nonstop. If you want an introduction to some of this stuff, read Shane Claiborne's newest book, Executing Grace. He breaks it all down from the Bible, from the stats, from the human beings who have been executed and got found out that they weren't guilty to the ones who were still executed when there's just, it's just, and yet in the gospels, we have Jesus on the cross identifying as the ultimate outcast absorbing all of it, all the pain, all the suffering. All... And yet we say, well, there's still some people that we also need to send to crosses. But blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. It, 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 just, it just doesn't work. And so, so one of the things we have to know, Jesus is willing to go to the farthest edge of where humans are outcasts and is willing to not only endure the wrath of what that identity is, but is willing to, I mean, think about it this way. What else could this world have done to Jesus? Nothing. 
Jesus stands in the space where the worst of the worst, see the air quotes, of the worst, and says, give me your worst. And it's in Jesus identifying with the worst of the worst of the worst and saying, I will be for you the worst of the worst, except you, you don't know this, but I'm not the worst of the worst of the worst. I will step into that space and expose just how evil the invisible and visible forces of this world actually are. And I will walk out of a tomb and show you that there is a better reality. Invite all people into it. Even this executed criminal next to me. I want to continue just reflecting. It just seems crazy to me. You know, as I read this story, uh, one scholar, uh, N.T. Wright, gives a little bit of a, a reflection on this passage that I think really gives us a bit more context. This is what he says. He says, Jesus has stood on its head the meaning of kingship, the meaning of the kingdom itself. He has celebrated with the wrong people, offered peace and hope to the wrong people, and warned the wrong people of God's coming judgment. What's that judgment? It's Jerusalem's going to be collapsing in 30 years, right? Or 80, 70. Yeah. Now he is hailed as king at last, but in mockery. Here comes his royal cupbearer, only it's a Roman soldier offering him the sour wine that poor people drank. Here is his royal placard announcing his kingship to the world, but it is in fact the criminal charge which explains his cruel death. This is the kind of identification that Jesus invites us into. Like, like we look at Jesus and we say, what is the most human thing to do? And Jesus shows us. It's to identify in the spaces that no one's willing to identify. I want to I keep going because there, there's, there's so much here that I could break down and I, I don't want to stay until two o'clock. So we'll keep going here. But the, uh, the next really big thing I think Jesus does here is in identifying with a criminal, he reveals that none of us are too far gone to, right? Like that, that, that's, a, that's a really big deal. And that's something that I think a lot of us need to hear on a very regular basis. None of us are too far gone. What do I mean by that? I'm not worried about your salvation and stuff when I say that, okay? Uh, that, that's between you and God, and, you know, I think God's pretty merciful. Here, here's, here's what I'm saying, is that you can be identified with this, this Jesus. Like, 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 you can experience the Jesus who identified with that criminal and said, welcome to paradise, is the same Jesus that you can experience in your own sort of crucifixion mess that you may find yourself in? What part of you feels outcast, like it doesn't fit? What part of you is like not together, like you don't have your sheaths together, right? Like, like what is it about your life? And it, everyone's life has something or things that are not all the way together. If not, you'd be like Jesus, right? Jesus says, you're not too far gone. In fact, I'm here to come close to you, to invite you into a new pattern of life, to invite you into a new way of being human. 
Not even Rome. Not even Rome has the power to revoke what Jesus wants for our lives. And that, my friends, is one of the most beautiful truths, I think, that comes out of this. And, you know, it it goes on, though, I, I think in identifying with a criminal, Jesus absorbs the full wrath of evil, conquering it all for us. Here's what I mean by that. Well, there's two things I mean by that. Number one, that in some mysterious sense, Jesus does step into a space that we don't have to step into, right? Like in that, when Jesus dies on the cross, Jesus is dying, and some of you are going to be like, dude, I don't know if I feel comfortable with this language, in our place. But here's how. Some people along the way got in their minds that we needed someone to step in the way so that there was a God in heaven who usually loves us except when we're sinners who's going to beat the crap out of us and send us to hell, right? And so Jesus gets on the cross because there is a God up there who wants to hurt me, but I'm just going to take it. Come on, daddy. There's no God of love in that. What does Jesus take in our place? The worst possible realities that Satan, sin, and the powers, I know that's very spiritual language. Some of you are like, dude, I'm 21st century. I still believe that's there. And the systems they empower, Jesus absorbs all of it and says, here's what you need to know. In my perfection, I will take on the wrath that is all around you that you're going to have to deal with on day in and day out. I'm going to absorb all of that wrath in your place insofar that you know that when I walk out of the tomb three days later, no matter what the wrath of this world does to you, you get to walk out of your own tomb too. That, that is the beauty of what we in Christian tradition call atonement theology, right? That's the beauty of the cross, that the powers of evil don't get the last word. Death doesn't get the last word. An empty grave gets the last word. Jesus conquers through sacrifice, through love. And so, so it's really important that we understand that Jesus is stepping into a space that we don't necessarily have to step into in the same way because we have the confidence that someone has stepped into it perfectly and none of us are going to get that gig right. But what we do know is that because of that, somehow, mysteriously, paradise will be our welcome as well. Like, that's, that's crazy. And so in identifying with a criminal, Jesus points to a God who wills rest from toil and pain. Do you need rest this morning? Like, do you need just, you're like, you know what, man? Like, I'm, I'm just tired. I'm just, like, not satisfied. Like, I, I just don't feel like the way that I live right now or the things that are happening to me, these forces that I can't even control, they're beating me down. There's a, um, I'm not going to name names or anything of the sort, but there is a person that I've become acquainted with online who lost her husband this weekend. They have a little, little dear girl just younger than Lydia. And I've been one of hundreds who've been praying and crying out to God and it didn't work out. 
I think God steps into even those spaces because God wills for her and that little girl rest from their toil and pain. God willed that for this man and it just didn't work out. But thank God for paradise, right? Paradise is something that we can experience with God now and for some, it's experienced in quicker ways than we think is right. But I, I know I need release from my toil and pain sometimes. And, and here's what I want to end with is this. I, I really do believe this. I believe that the paradise Jesus spoke of is more about relational connection with God and the, you know, the divine, whatever term helps you connect. Jesus, that helps me connect. And that if it's relational and that God has invaded this world, that can begin right now. And now I know if you're new to Pangea and you've ever been to a church, you're going to wonder now, okay, is he about to lead us to some prayer or something right now? I'm not going to do that, I promise. All I am trying to do is lay the foundation for you to see that Christianity is about identifying with the greatest of outcasts who happens to also be the creator of all things we know that are good. And if, if we're going to be the kind of people who, who identify with Jesus, with this kind of outcast, we also have to believe that today paradise has begun because today it is available to us insofar that we choose to connect with this Jesus who is present and among us in this room, in this world. That paradise can actually begin now. Now, what I don't mean by this I struggle with the grass being greener on the other side all the time, right? And that's what we've done to our, our faith a lot of times. Oh, don't worry about all your pain. Don't worry about all the stuff you're dealing with because paradise down in the future, you'll die and it'll be great. So, so your temporal experience of pain, at least it'll, I don't think that's very comforting personally. Do you? Have you really think about it? Like when you're, when you're in like the worst emotional moment that you've had in years, do you need to know that when you die and go to heaven that you're going to feel better? No. What you need to know is that there was a God who was crying with you. That there is a God who wants to be in fidelity with you. And there is a community of people that also believe that fidelity to Jesus means fidelity to each other. And if that is the truth of how we organize our lives, then when those tears are shed, through extension, they're being shed by all of us. And through extension, more directly than we could even accomplish, Jesus is experiencing that. That God is not far off. And the grass is greener any space we step into with Jesus, even if it's the green space of a cross in the first century on the side of a hill called the skull. I know this hard for me to really process, to be honest with you. Anyone? Okay, that's really comforting that I can experience God now, but I have cancer, right? My grandpa had cancer. I've, I've shared this before. And I've never seen a human being who was so connected to the greenness of the pasture in front of him there in that space Because Jesus was with him. 
And he knew that, and that was empowering him to die. Isn't that crazy? That sometimes the best God has for us is to empower people to die, but to die well. But that's not all of our case. That's not all of our story. So the question we have to really ask ourselves is, like, like, what would it look like to experience the green beauty of paradise here and now in the midst of the crucifixions we face, in the midst of the pain we're dealing with? You know, there's a writer in the Hebrew Bible, and let me tell you about someone who really didn't have it together, a guy named David. Anyone? Yeah, and it's not David Mead who goes to church here. Um, he has it all together. He almost looks like Jesus. Um, <laughs> however, this David, he, he really didn't have it together. You know the story? Like, he, he has a dude killed because he wants to steal his wife. Man, that'd be some good drama. In fact, I'm pretty sure TV shows have taken that motif, right? People watch that. It's interesting. Disgusting. Like, he, he really, like, had a bunch of problems. Like, he, but he, he spent the rest of his life, like, wrestling with the implications of that big mistake, didn't he? And even in the, new, in, in the Bible, like, when they mention David after he's dead, it's very interesting. They say thing, they'll say things like, David, the greatest king. Oh, except for that one time. <laughs> and, and you know what? All of us have except for that one time, don't we? Or that two times, or that ten times, or that twenty times, or that all kinds of times that no one talks about. And in the midst of all that, David writes a psalm that has become one of the most deep comforts in our culture, Psalm 23. And what I want to do today, as we close, is I want to invite you to take a posture of rest. I want to invite you to take a posture of quieting yourselves. And here at church, we often lead right into silence together. And this is where we're going to lead into silence this morning. I'm going to read Psalm 23, and I want to allow those words to just kind of wash over you wherever you are. You may say, man, I am so far away from paradise right now. I don't even know what it would be like to connect with God or with something more beautiful. And some of you are like, you know what? I'm not even sure I believe in this God, but I want to tap into the kind of rest you're talking about. And let me tell you something. You can tap into it even if you don't understand it. There's space for that. But as these words are washing over you. Maybe your, your eyes are closed or your hands are open, whatever, whatever helps you connect. May you come to know that the green grass of paradise wants to invade your outcast moments here and now. Let me read this to us all. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He lets me rest in grassy meadows. He leads me to restful waters. He keeps me alive. He guides me in proper paths for the sake of his good name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they protect me. You set a table for me right in front of my enemies. 
You bathe my head in oil. My cup is so full it spills over. Yes, goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the Lord's house as long as I live.